See you guys this morning. If you have your Bibles, we are finishing up our study through the book of Second Peter. We're in Second Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18. Oh, if anyone needs a Bible, these guys are up here. They have Bibles in hand. We have large print and regular print available for you. So uh, just raise your hand and we'll get a Bible right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Right in front of you, Bill. There's right there. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. Apostle Peter writes, starting in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking to them of the things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Time of my message this morning is growing in grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this time, this opportunity that we can get into Your Word. Holy Spirit, thank you for showing to us uh, things that we need to hear personally, Lord, and Lord, for speaking to us as a church corporately. We thank you for this opportunity to, to get to know you better, Lord, and that's our desire, that's our heart. We pray, Lord, your blessing upon our children downstairs as they, are being, as they are being taught your word at this very moment as well. We thank you for the work that you're doing in this church. And finally, Lord, we pray if there's anyone here this morning that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you. They're not born again yet. Lord, would you especially touch their heart today, help them to see their need for you, and to completely surrender their heart and life to, to following you, Lord Jesus. Bless our time together, we pray. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Next time you're washing your hands and that water temperature just isn't, it just isn't right, or next time you come home and that air conditioning in the house is just not getting your house as cold as you, you like, Think about what it was like living in the 1500s. I found a few facts about it. Most people got married in June because they took their yearly bath in May and still smelled pretty good by June. <laughs> However, you know, starting to smell, uh, so they were starting to smell, so brides carried a bouquet of flowers to hide their body odor. In the 1500s, baths considered, uh, consisted of a big tub filled with hot water the man of the house had the privilege of getting the nice clean water, then the sons, then the woman, and finally the children, and last of all, the babies. By then, the water was so dirty you could actually lose someone in it, hence the saying, don't throw the baby out with the bath water. <laughs> in the 1500s, houses had thatched roofs, thick straw piled high with no wood underneath. It was all, it was a, the only place for uh, animals to get warm, so all the dogs and cats and other small animals, mice, bugs, lived in that roof. When it rained, it became slippery, and sometimes the animals would slip and fall off the roof, hence the saying, it's raining cats and dogs. You guys got that one. 
Now, there's nothing to stop other things from falling down into the house, and that posed a real problem in the bedroom, where bugs and other droppings could really mess up your bed. Hence, the bed with big posts and the sheet hung over the top of it uh, afforded some protection. That's how canopy beds became into existence. In the 1500s, the dirt, uh, the floor was dirt. Only the wealthy had something other than dirt, hence the saying, dirt poor. The wealthy had slate floors that would get slippery in the winter when, when it was wet. So they spread a fresh uh, thresh or straw on the floor to help keep their footing. As the winter wore on, they kept adding more thresh until when you opened the door, it would start slipping outside the door. So a piece of wood was placed in the entranceway, hence a threshold. There you go. In those days, uh, sometimes they could obtain pork which made them feel quite special. When visitors came over, they would hang the bacon to show it off. It was a sign of wealth that, that a man could bring home the bacon. A couple more. They would uh, cut off a little to share with guests and all sit around and chew the fat. Finally, in the 1500s, uh, uh, England in the 1500s was old and small, and the local folks started to run out of place to bury people, so they would dig up coffins and we take the bones to a bone house and we use the grave. Well, when opening these coffins, one out of 25 coffins were found to have scratch marks on the inside and they realized they'd been burying people alive. So they thought that they would uh, tie a string on the wrist of the corpse, lead it uh, through the coffin and up to the ground and, and tie it to a bell. But someone would have to sit in the graveyard all night, thus the graveyard shift, to listen to the bell, thus someone could be saved by the bell or considered a dead ringer. I didn't make these up. I just found them, okay? As Paul Harvey would say, now you know the rest of the story. I, for one, am very glad things have changed over the years. That we've learned, that we've grown. I'm truly thankful for the modern conveniences that we have. I'm thankful to be living in this time in history. And that's God's desire for us spiritually, that we would continue to grow in our walk with Him. Again, the title of my message this morning is Growing in Grace. To grow in grace means to mature as a Christian. We're saved by grace through faith, and we mature and are sanctified by grace alone. We know that grace is a blessing that we don't deserve. It's God's grace that justifies us, that sanctifies us, that eventually glorifies us in heaven. But as we wait for that day, Christ calls all of us as Christians to be on the right side of this upside-down world. We all know how dark it is outside the four walls of this church. The world is full of violence, perversiveness, evilness, and rebellion. It's dark, it's grim, and it makes you wonder why anyone would want to stay living their lives like that. And you have to wonder, why aren't more people turning to Jesus? When you see all that Jesus, who, all who Jesus is and you, you know all that Jesus has done for us, why are people still choosing to live in darkness? Paul gives us that reason and an explanation in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4. He says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, whose image of God should shine on them. See, the God of this age... Satan has blinded the minds of those around us. So they don't even see the darkness that they're living in, this rut that they're in. Now the problem is, as believers, we do. We see what's going on around us, and it can get us down and discouraged and can even get us feeling overwhelmed when we see 
the darkness around us. And I think it can make it hard for us to get up in the morning knowing the battles that we're going to have to face each and every day. That co-worker that just wants to harass you day in and day out because you name the name of Christ. Those Hollywood actors just mocking anything you do with traditional Christian values. Added to that, the temptations we all face ourselves to give in to our flesh and give in to our selfish desires and pride. Maybe it's the frustration of praying for a family member's salvation and seemingly nothing is happening. It almost seems like the same old routine morning after morning. Listen, Peter has been trying to encourage us that one day, very soon, the curtain will fall and the show, whole show will be over. And every person who's ever lived will stand before God, stripped of all celebrity status, stripped of any fame and fortune, and they will have to give an account to God for their lives. And those not found covered by the blood of Jesus Christ will be sent in everlasting punishment and torment. But as we wait for that day, Peter doesn't want us to grow discouraged. He would rather us grow in grace. And so he describes for us the right side of life in this upside-down world. He gives for us instructions on how to, we as Christians are to live in light of his soon return. I think so often, again, we get discouraged and we want to give up and we want to quit. And there might be some of you here this morning. You come in and maybe you're feeling like you want to quit. and Maybe you want to give up on your marriage or maybe you want to give up on your ministry. Maybe you want to give up on some relationship or some task that God has called you to do. Maybe you're facing so much opposition, too much persecution, you just want to throw in the towel, you just want to, want to quit. See, I'm sure we've all been there at some point or another or going to be there, so we need to not quit. We need to keep going. Spurgeon used to say, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. I like that. I get that picture of the ark and all the animals are on and they're looking out in the distance and they see these two little snails. Like, Come on. You could do it. Get in here. Come on. That's what Peter's telling us this morning. The same thing. Don't give up. We're so close. Hang in there. Now, we know that Peter has told us in chapter 1, we need to rest in our relationship with the Lord. That God has provided everything we need for life and godliness. Then we looked at chapter 2 and we were told to resist anything that's false, anything that's untrue. Reject it. Resist it. So rest, resist. And then we came to chapter 3, And we're told to be ready. Be ready because Jesus is coming back. Rest, resist, and be ready. Why? Look back at verse 10 of chapter 3 for a moment. Peter tells us that the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Remember last week, we talked about, we took a trip out to the dump, looked at our stuff that was over there, and after we left the dump, we went to the junkyard and saw that brand new car that you had at one time is now a pancake We noted that since it's all going to burn, since all these things are going to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Holy living, set apart for Christ. Godliness, living our lives, willing to to please God, wanting to please God. Because if, if possessions truly don't matter in our lives, 
then what's left is our relationship with the Lord. And what we have apart from our possessions is what's what's going to make a difference in eternity. So Peter says, since it's all going to burn anyway, since the world is going to dissolve with fervent heat, what manner of persons ought we to be? Knowing that the Lord is going to return and that the possessions don't really matter, how should we be living? How do we stand out in this world and yet still grow in the grace as we wait for the Lord's return? Well, in order to do that, we need to have some self-examination going on. If you're taking notes, Peter lays out for us uh, three things. The need to examine, number one, the condition of our hearts. Number two, the condition of our minds. And number three, the condition of our walks. Number one, the condition of our hearts. See, what we learn from Peter is that if this world is really coming to an end, if we're really to be looking for heaven, then there needs to be a certain condition in our hearts today. Look now at verse 14. Peter says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Peter says, okay, imagine for a moment the world is over. It's the end. We are on the other side of eternity. Is that something that you are looking forward to? Well, someone with maybe a high position, a lot of authority, a lot of possessions might say, well, not yet. You see, I've really got a lot going on and these things really mean a lot to me. Besides, I've been really looking forward to retirement. I've, I've, I've enjoyed all, you know, I've got all this stuff saved up for me. So I'm not really looking forward to, to go. Not yet. As I shared last week, possessions are not a bad thing as long as they don't possess you. But what if all that gets taken away? What then? You know, it's been well said, the real worth of someone is who they are without anything. If you have no money, no possessions, who are you? No status. Who are you? Who are you without your stuff? Are you somebody like Paul who said in Philippians 4.11, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. If you are, then I would say you probably have something of some spiritual substance in you. And I would venture to say you absolutely are ready for the return of Jesus Christ. And then the thought of Christ's return should bring you peace. That's what Peter's saying in verse 14. Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. I mean, if you really believe that Jesus could come back at any moment, then your life is going to stand out from the rest of the world and you're going to have just this, this heart of peace. But not only that, your heart's going to be without spot and blameless. So a heart at peace without spot and blameless, Peter says. That word for peace if you're taking note in the Greek, implies oneness, rest, prosperity. Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world uh, gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So how can we have peace in such an unpeaceful world? It's to be found in Him in oneness. And that oneness only comes through abiding in Jesus Christ. Jesus said this in John 15, 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. See, our relationship to Christ is unlike anything else in, in the human realm. It can be described only by comparing it maybe to a relationship we are familiar with. It's like a deep friendship. It's like two people in love with each other, or like the love and respect shared by a father and a son. So there's this peace, there's this oneness that comes from abiding in Christ so that as you're living this way, when the Lord returns for you, for me, it would be as though the Lord had never left. 
I remember what Pastor Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, once said. When Christ returns for me, I want to have the transformation take place so immediate, so instantaneous, that I don't know that anything has really happened. I like that. I think Pastor Chuck lived that out. What he was saying is, is that, that you get to the place in your life where you're so pure at heart, you're so one with the Lord, doing what you're supposed to do, that when you leave this body and you're up in heaven, you're still kind of in the process of doing what you were doing before. I mean, take, for example, right now, Sunday morning. Suddenly, the rapture happens. Poof, we're there. In a, in a moment, in the twinkle of an eye. The sound of a trumpet, and here I am teaching the Word of God, and then as the next sentence leaves my lips, suddenly I'm in heaven. My next point is, what's happened? Well, we're still together. We left the worship service here in Springfield. Now we're all together worshiping the Lord in heaven. To me, that would be perfect. That would be great. I would love that. I would love to be raptured while I'm teaching God's Word, while I'm worshiping the Lord, while I'm praying. Wouldn't it be great to be in prayer, praying to the Lord? I just pray for and look for with great anticipation for that time when you take me home to be with you. Lord, I love, poof, and you're there before the Lord. Oh, God, I was just praying. Lord, I'd love to be with you, and now I'm here. Wouldn't it be great? Yeah, you're here. I, I brought you here. Yeah, but I was just praying that, and now I'm here with the Lord. This is great. It'd be awesome. Now, the opposite of that would be a real bummer. You're down here on this earth. The rapture happens, and now you're in heaven. But your last words were, I can't believe that idiot in front of me. Where did I learn to drive? It's called a blinker. Don't you know what a blinker is? Poof. <laughs> you were saying, Tom? Uh, uh, uh. See, at that point, it really doesn't matter how that other person drives. None of that matters. Here's my point. I don't want to be so attached to this world that when Jesus returns, I don't have that peace, that oneness. I don't have that joy. Because peace, which means oneness, also has with it the idea of prosperity. In other words, you know that you've been working together with the Lord, sharing your faith, watching people come to faith in Christ, so that when you see Jesus face to face, suddenly you're prospering with the joy that comes from finally seeing Jesus face to face. It's that happiness that's beyond compare and the reward and blessedness of heaven. That's what it truly means to be prospering in joy. But again, you can be found in him right now with that same prosperity of joy and happiness and blessedness by making sure your hearts are where they need to be. By falling in love with the Lord over and over again. I know I've shared this before, but, but think about when you first fell in love with your wife or your husband. You're so in love with them. If you remember back you know, when you were dating, back before cell phones, you'd go to hang up. Oh, I love you. I'll talk to you in the morning. Okay, I love you too. You still there? Yeah, I'm still there. <laughs> oh, you hang up. No, you hang up. Oh, I love you. Today, you know, it's emojis. Well, I got to get some sleep. Z, 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 Z. Love you, heart, 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 heart. Kissy face, kissy face. Oh, I love you too. Heart, 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 heart. Three kissy faces, heart, kissy face, kissy face. Oh, I love you too. Heart, 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 heart. Three kissy faces, happy face with heart eyes. Oh, how sweet. I love you too. Kissy face, three happy faces, heart. And it goes on for hours just to say goodbye. But it doesn't matter how late it is that you would text all night because you're in love. But then here's what happens. You get married. <laughs> You've been married for 15, 20 years. And she texts you, hon, we're out of milk. Could you pick up some on the way home? You reply, emoji face, sad face, thumbs down, angry eyes. 
I'm tired, zzzz, zzz, 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 I just want to go home and go to bed. Listen, that's the heart of what Peter's saying. If you're truly at peace and in your heart there is that oneness, you're so focused, so together with the Lord that you let nothing interrupt that togetherness, that relationship with Him. Oh, yes, dear, happy face. I would love to stop to get some milk, bottle of a milk emoji, kissy face. Can't wait to see you. Wink, 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 thumbs up. See, that's what Peter means when he says, be diligent to be found by him in peace, in that oneness, in that prosperity of joy of just being together, to get our eyes off of this world and onto Jesus Christ. Now, the only way to be found by him in peace uh, not rather, not only would he be found in him by peace, but Peter goes on to say in verse 14, to be diligent to be found by him without spot. That's the next thing he says, without spot. That's easy. I use tie detergent, gets all the spots out. <laughs> not exactly. The word for spot means being free from censure. It means to be free from vice and immorality. Also carries with it the idea that you won't be careless, thoughtless, or lazy. And when you think about it, how do you get a spot a stain on your shirt or on your top by being careless, thoughtless, maybe lazy. Oh, I can't believe I just spilled on me. And I love that each night last week during vacation Bible school, Chris Govia made some form of meat dish for us. It was amazing and, and, and so thankful for Chris for that. The final night, he brought in beef barbacoa with all the different types of hot sauces all laid out on it. Well, here walks KJ Romine up and he's got this bright white t-shirt on. It says, vote for Angela Romine, state senator, citizen for the citizens. Short shirt looks, I mean, bright, bright white, you know, brand new. Now, KJ puts together this beef barco and this got the flour tortilla, and he's putting cilantro on that and hot sauce on, two scoops of hot sauce. And I was amazed he didn't get a single spot on that shirt. I actually walked away and came back when he was finished thinking, oh, sure, he's dripped on it. Nothing. It was spotless. If it were me, I'd just look at that sauce and it jumps on my shirt. <laughs> not KJ. Why? Because he was extra careful, diligent, not to get a spot on his bright white t-shirt that says, vote for Angela Romine, state senator, <laughs> citizen for the citizens, Tuesday, August 2nd. I'm not sure it said Tuesday, August 2nd, but... Listen. <laughs> in the same way, Peter says, we're to be careful. Diligent to be found in him, not careless, not thoughtless, not lazy. Why? Because you know at any time you're going to meet your maker. So you don't want to do anything that's going to stain your clothes of righteousness that he has given to you without spots. Let me give you another example. You know, I've done a few weddings here over the years. And all the weddings that I have done, I've never gone in to pray with the bride and the bridesmaids or talk to them before the wedding ceremony only to find her munching down on chocolate and it's all over her fingers and all over her face and on her gown. I've never gone into the groom and looked at him and said, you know, it's time to get dressed. And he says, dressed? I am dressed. He's got these paint clothes on and, and sweats. and No way. It's, it's quite the opposite. The, the bride's gown that cost hundreds if not thousands of dollars, it's all in plastic, carried very gingerly to the place where the bride puts it on, careful not to get, uh, get it near anyone or anything that would stain it. She's preparing for the presentation of the bride and the groom. She spent hours, days, weeks. In fact, I know this happens because my daughter, when she was doing hair and makeup, they would come in a week before and they would do a trial run. Oh, could you do my hair and my makeup so I can see how it's going to look in a week from now? 
Let me say this also. The many weddings that I've done here, I don't believe any of them started on time. Because once you get a group of women together in one room (laughs) with a bridal dress and their desire for everything to be perfect, it's going to take some time. The whole thing is an ordeal. Why? No spots. She's not going to walk up the aisle with some stain or blemish or spot. She's going to be found in peace without spot and she could be considered also blameless. In fact, the word for blameless in verse 14 means without rebuke. That means that for the bride... She's without rebuke as she is standing there waiting for a groom. She's prepared herself perfectly to meet him. Without rebuke means she's standing there without the thought of another guy ever again. Without a thought of ever going back to her past life. She's without any hesitation as she's drawn close to the groom where she will find happiness and satisfaction for the rest of her days. That's the picture, folks, that Peter's painting for us. We are the church. We are the bride of Christ. We are clothed in His righteousness, His goodness, because of all of our own righteousness. It's like filthy rags, the Bible says. We are standing here, we are sitting here this morning without any thought of ever going back to our old lives, making sure our garment stays clean, staying away from sin. We're living in such a way that we can be found in Him, in peace, without spot and blameless. You might say, oh, Pastor Tom, I'm convicted right now, because that's not me. That's not happening in my life at this moment. Listen, we all can relate. Because if being in peace means oneness, spotless and blameless, then the problem is I have stains. I keep getting stains. I keep dropping stuff on my garment of praise. Listen, we all struggle with this, all of us. But that's why Peter here moves from the condition of our hearts to point number two, the condition of our minds. Look at verse 15. He says, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. That word consider means to suppose, think, meditate on. Meditate, consider, think upon, verse 15 and 16, that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, as written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So we go from our heart to our mind. The heart, you're supposed to be at peace, without spot and blameless, and now we come to the mind. We realize that it's only through the studied mind that we can have a heart in that three-part condition. For the most part, if someone is committed to the study of God's word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, you can say they know God. And a studied mind knows that the greatest attribute and our characteristic of a compassionate God towards us is his long-suffering love. So when Peter says in verse 15 that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, he wants us, our, our minds to comprehend just how much Jesus loves us. Now let me say that the Lord Jesus has not yet returned to earth for one reason and one reason only that more and more people might be saved. That more and more people might be snatched out of the cause of death and judgment. That's long-suffering love. And that's the reason the Lord delays His return. It's not because He's forgotten about us down here. It's not because He's angry with man because man has not paid more attention to His word or teaching. And again, it's certainly not because He doesn't care and love man enough to deliver him out of that evil corruption and suffering of this world. The Lord cares and loves man so much that He wants all men to be saved. 
He longs for men and women to repent and turn from their sin and turn to Him. Because He knows that when He returns, every single unbeliever will be doomed for all eternity. So He waits one more day. He waits longing for a few more to be saved. He waits because He knows that all unbelievers will be doomed to judgment and destruction. I mean, after all, think about the long-suffering love towards you that God's given to you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He still loved you. How long did he wait for you? 10 years? 20 years? I've seen people come to the Lord in their 70s, well into their 80s. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the Bible says. That's long-suffering love. Now when we think of love, we don't think of love in that way. It's usually the human aspect of love that we think of it. Human love says, well, I love you when you're lovable. But on a human level, you don't say, I love you when you are being unlovable. We don't do that. On a human level, you don't hear, I love you even though you don't love me. No, typically, I love those who love me. But to love someone that doesn't love me, or to love someone that doesn't want to love me, or to love someone that is proving to me through their actions that their lack of love towards me and that they are downright mean and nasty towards me, that's a different story to love a person like that. But not for God. He loves us anyway. In fact, you'll never hear from me, if you ever have a counseling appointment with me, you'll never hear me say, I know what your problem is. God just doesn't love you anymore. (laughs) But he's sick of hearing all all your problems. You remember how he said he forgives seven times 70? That's 490. Well, buddy, you're on 491. (laughs) God doesn't love you. I'm sorry to say, you're going down, you're done. Now, you know I'm being sarcastic, but that's a real problem. We may not say it, but we assume that that is what God is doing in our lives from time to time when things don't go our way. Perhaps things don't turn out the way we think they should and we we think that somehow God is punishing us or somehow, well, God just doesn't love us. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. I know there are times we may have fallen and sinned and said to ourselves, God, I, I know you can't let me down. I'm such a sinner. And God says, yeah, you are a sinner. But that's why I came, to save you and to show you just how much I really do love you and I will forgive you. Why? Because it's God's goodness that leads us to repentance. It's His kindness. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. I love the way this is put in the New Living Translation. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that His kindness is intended to turn you away from your sin? Let me say it again. It's God's long-suffering love towards us that keeps us coming back to the cross Back to this place where he laid down his life for our sins. Don't buy into the lie that God doesn't love you. That's what Satan wants you to think. Quit drinking the poison of haterade. You know, I don't know. Just because you blow it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you any more or any less. God is love. That's grace. Now, that amazes me. That blows my mind. And that's the reason why I believe many struggle with their salvation from time to time is because we fully, really don't understand the grace of God. And certainly, to the world, looking at the church, they can't comprehend God's grace, God's forgiveness. They look at some hardened criminal in jail that repents and comes to Christ and and it's truly changed. And they say, no way, I can't be real. You know, how could God still love that person? But God does. Why? Because God is long-suffering is love that he's unwilling that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, God has given us a free choice. 
But sadly, as a result of that free choice, God doesn't get what he wants, which was for men and women everywhere to be saved. So when it comes to salvation, Peter says in verse 15, Paul, concerning Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking to them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of scriptures. See, first off, Peter verifies that Paul's writings are scripture. Speaking of the epistles, Paul wrote on how people twist Paul's words. Peter says they do so like they do the rest of scripture. They twist to their own destruction, Peter says. Do people really twist the word of God to their own destruction? Well, think about it. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Catholics, the list could go on. Those that teach once saved, always saved, so it doesn't matter how you live. It's going to go to heaven. They call it greasy grace. Problem is, we'll all stand before God and we'll hear either, uh, you know, well done, a good and faithful servant, or depart from me, I never knew you. Those that twist God's word to their own destruction. That's what Peter's saying. See, there were those during this time that were twisting God's word and misusing God's grace. In fact, they were ignoring grace altogether and attempting to live under the law to achieve salvation. Peter says, take, for example, my buddy Paul. You know, some of the things he says are hard to understand. You know, Paul, he's one of those brainiacs. You know, I think a Pastor Bruce here at the church knows Greek and Hebrew. You go, okay, I, I got a computer. I can look it up the word this way. But, but this guy, you know. Here Peter says, Paul, you know, there are those even twisting Paul's words. They're trying to defend their ignorance. I think if Pastor Bruce, he can say, this is what the word means in Greek. This is what it means in Hebrew. Well, no, it doesn't. Okay, do you know Greek or Hebrew? No, but it doesn't mean that. But that's what it says. That's what they're doing. They're twisting that word. It also has, the word twist also has the idea of torture. Torture is what happens when we take the grace of God and we turn it into legalism in order to, to accomplish our own objective. That is what we do when we attempt to control people in the congregation of God by twisting God's word to get them to do what we think they should do according to my standard, according to our own standards. Peter says, don't do it. Don't twist it. But then you have the Apostle Paul, who was also accused of teaching that since we're saved by grace, it makes no difference how we live. In fact, Paul mentions that in the letter to the Romans in chapter 3, verse 8. He says that it was slanderously reported uh, that Paul was teaching, let us do evil that good may come. That's twisted, sister. That's twisted, brother. <laughs> Twisting the word of God to their own destruction. Same way, there are those today that say, well, if God is going to keep loving me over and over again, and he's not going to stop loving me, then I can live however I want. And then maybe the next 10, 15 years, as I get older, I know God loves me, then, then I'll, I'll come back to God just at the right time. Listen, if you would do that to somebody that loves you as much as he does, then you're really twisted. But we wouldn't do that because we really know his love and we've experienced his grace and we know in our mind that it's his long-suffering Lord's love towards us that leads us to salvation. Because if you understand his love, then as we close out the chapter in verses 17 and 18, we move from the heart to the mind to our walk with the Lord. And that's point number three, the condition of our walks. Look at verse 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen.
Back to verse 17, Peter says, since you know this beforehand. What do you know beforehand? Well, in your mind, you've determined through the study of his word how much you see how long-suffering God is towards you. In your heart, you've determined to be at peace with him, no spot or blemish. But even if there's a spot or blemish, you know that the Lord, uh, there's grace of God that will keep you. Finally, Peter says, what is the condition of your walk? What are you doing to maintain that right relationship with God? Peter says we need to have a steadfastness in our walk. That word for steadfastness means stability uh, or certain direction. Listen, we all know what to do. You know, it amazes me that people say, well, I really don't know what the Lord wants me to do. Well, I'll say, well, you studying the Bible? No, not really, not lately. Have you been praying? No, not, not really. Have you been fellowshipping with other believers? Well, I haven't been to church in a while. I don't seem to get along with Christians, so I'm hanging out with my old friends in the world. Well, have you told anyone about Jesus and the relationship that you have with him? No, I'm kind of shy. Listen, you know what to do. Read, pray, go to church, share your faith. And if you don't maintain that steadfastness, that stability, that direction, then you will in verse 17, Peter, excuse me, Peter says, be led away down that path of error along with the wicked. Here's the key, Peter says. This is the culmination of my letter to you, my conclusion, my final point. Understand that if you haven't understood anything else I've said in my letter to you, understand this, verse 18, you need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Your walk with Christ needs to be one in which you are growing, not only in the grace, but also in knowledge. Because if you have His grace, then you won't have the knowledge to know what is right and what is wrong. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.34, Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak to your shame. If you just trust in God's grace, then you might find yourself doing something that is wrong without even knowing it. In the same way, if all you have is knowledge and no grace, then all you will have is a list of rights and wrongs and do's and don'ts. Legalism. And sadly enough, when you blow it and you make a wrong mistake, you won't have His grace to bring you back and give you another try of the list of the do's and don'ts that you have established. That's why Peter is showing us the importance of having the knowledge of his word along with grace so that we know that when we've blown it, we can come to him after the fact and find grace and mercy and help in our time of need. And as a result, we grow in his grace. Because you now have the knowledge of God to know when I blow it, but just have the grace of God for when you don't meet up with his requirements for my life. And that's why Peter can rightly close with, to him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Why to God be the glory? Because of all the things he's done for us. He's given us his grace. So when we make mistakes, you know, he gives us the word so, so I won't make so many mistakes. And I think because of his long-suffering love that keeps me on the right path, he continues to show me the importance of Bible study and witnessing and fellowship and prayer. As I said, we all know what we should be doing and how we should be living. Again, it's a pat answer I give over and over again. We don't know what to do. Do what you know. We know we should be praying, so pray. We know we should be studying God's Word, so study God's Word. Read God's Word. We know we should be in fellowship, so be here. Be in fellowship. And finally, we know we should be sharing our faith, so come out Friday night, do just that. Make it a point to share your faith with at least one person this week. And if you're doing these things on a regular basis, you're going to grow in grace. If not then what are you expecting your life to be like? 
You might say, well, I know that God is gracious. I thought I would just cruise along on His grace for a while. No, understand the grace of God was not designed for you to be able to just jump into sin and jump out of it at will. As Paul would say, should we continue to sin so God's grace may abound? God forbid, how can we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? No, the grace of God was given to us for those times when we fall into sin and we want to get out. Not for those jumping into sin. There's a big difference. Grace is for falling, not for jumping. If you want to jump into sin and continue to live in sin, that's not a matter of grace. That's a matter of salvation. And you need to repent. You need to get saved. God's grace was not designed so you can keep on sinning. God's grace, again, was divinely designed to pick you up from falling. Say, Lord, I fell. I'm sorry. I need your grace. Not I willingly disobey. I continue to do whatever I want and will continue to, and I'm just hoping his grace will cover me. Greasy grace. You can't expect that. Or if you're walking in some religion that you made up on your own that has nothing to do with God's grace and you continue to assume upon his grace, then you're going to find yourself in a miserable condition. And God's not going to allow you to stay that way if you're truly a child of God. But the fact is, if you have that perfect balance of grace and knowledge, then you'll grow. Listen, to grow in grace does not mean gaining more grace from God. God's grace never increases. It's infinite. It cannot be more according to the nature of God. It can never be less. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. How much more grace could there be than than that? But to grow in grace is to grow in our understanding of what Jesus did and to grow in appreciation of the grace that we have been given. And the more we learn about Jesus, the more we'll appreciate all He's done and the more we'll appreciate His love and His sacrifice and the more we will perceive the never-ending grace of God. Again, Peter closes, verse 18, To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. And I wholeheartedly agree. Listen, as we close, if your knowledge of God and the things of God does not lead you to worship God and to surrender to God every aspect of your life to Him, if it does not lead you to repentance, then you need to examine your life and see where you're truly at with the Lord. Have you truly surrendered your heart and life to Him? Have you asked Him to forgive you of your sin? You can do so this morning. You can come to Christ and have every sin you've ever committed forgiven. You can have a clean slate. That's grace. Not only that, but God promises to send His Holy Spirit to live inside you, guide you, direct you, your life, and fill your life with His presence. If that's your desire, as soon as you're done here this morning, please come up and talk to me. I'd love to pray with you, give you a Bible, let you know what it means to follow Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for uh, just this uh, opportunity to be in your word. Lord, we want that oneness. We want that peace that passes understanding, a peace that the world can never give. Lord, we understand that comes by setting our mind on you, putting our mind on what you're doing, getting our mind off the things of this world. None of that satisfies. Lord, we recognize that. Lord, help us to have the right heart towards you, the right mind towards you. Help us to live for you each and every moment, expecting, Lord, that you could return at any moment. And finally, Father, I pray if there's anyone here yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, would you touch their heart, help them to see their need for you, and they would make that commitment to follow you today. Thank you for our time together. We ask your blessing upon our baptism this evening, our time of fellowship this evening, Lord, that in all things we do here at Calvary, you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.